Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hello, you are listening to the China Sports Insider Podcast. I am Haig Valiant, and that is Mark Dreyer. He is the author of Sporting Superpower, and we are recording this on the very last day of the Beijing Winter Olympics. How are you coping? It's been a whirlwind. I mean, it always is. The the build up, it's gone quickly, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, not gonna lie. There's there's I'm still excited, feeling kind of you know it's kind of like that Sunday evening feel, getting the blues again. End of the Olympics. You know, I've been here before, and um. Gonna miss it. I'm gonna miss uh, yeah, it. Yeah, I'm gonna miss. I'm gonna miss watching the sports. It's been a, it's been a lot of highs and a lot of lows, and one of the lows, obviously, this week was the women's final for the figure skating. Oh man! <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, the the high of her short program, and then the lowest of lows in the in the in the free skating. And if people didn't see it, you know, just I mean, she was. Everyone expected her to clean up. She was walking her way to gold. And it was going to be an, an ROC podium sweep, which would have basically triggered the world beyond comprehension at the outrage of, of the injustice. Uh, and then, you know, she stumbled. And, and this, again, as with many of these stories, a lot of different levels. People sort of saying, well, it's, you know, it's, it's you know, it, she's only 15. Is it her fault? You know, and, and should she even be there in the first place? And who's to blame? And all these different things. And then, of course, the focus on that. On, on the the coach, the the super villain coach oh with the God. It was a just, Terry. Yeah, I mean, uh, could not super villain. Yeah, exactly. What a caricature. Yeah. Of yeah. of like the the evil coach. Wow. If I could just turn this to me for a second. <laughs> <laughs> so you might recall that at the beginning of the games, uh, we may have had an opportunity to go to a couple of events. This was actually one of the events that. I put in for, and as yeah. I was watching, I was like, "Was it? Is that a good thing that I didn't, I didn't actually end up going, or a bad thing?" Because wow, that was uncomfortable watching. On, yeah, it was tough to watch. Yeah, so many, so many highs as well. And you know, one of those highs is that China continues to rack up gold. Just yesterday, figure skaters uh, Sui Wenjing and Han Song from Harbin won figure skating gold, and that was amazing. It was, and again, another fantastic story because four years ago in Pyeongchang they were leading after the first program and they made mistakes in their in their second half and had to settle for silver. This time they were, I mean, I watched it; they were absolutely stunning. I'm far from a figure skating expert, but it was like, wow, huh. that was good. And it was close though, super super tight. Right. Uh, a couple of ROC couples were just within a couple of points, all within a couple of points for gold. They 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 won it a ninth gold for China unprecedented 
uh, way beyond expectations, uh, realistic expectations. If people were saying they were expecting nine goals for China, uh, they they were either crazy or they were unrealistic. But it's been a fantastic performance beyond their wildest hopes, I think. And Eileen Gu won her second gold medal in the free ski halfpipe. Okay, so just a few days ago, yeah, uh, we, you talked about how the conversation around Eileen Gu had subtly su- subtly been shifting in China, um, and that shift has become a little more noticeable. I think in the in the last few days, uh, the Wall Street Journal had a piece on this a couple of days ago. And one of the things that I found found interesting is that you've been pointing out some of the privileges that Gu seems to have had in the Olympics that maybe other athletes from China haven't. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the contrast, I think, and and Chinese friends have have pointed this out to me as well. Like she has her mother and her grandmother in the in the in the mixed loop for one thing. She was posing with her grandma. It was a great picture. But I was thinking, well. She's how is she part of Team China's delegation? How many other athletes get that? There's obviously um, benefits that she's got with the whole citizenship passport thing. We've discussed that before. She was able to wear, you know, her hat of choice on the podium, the, the panda hat, and everyone was loving that. But it's usual that you have to wear the team uniform. That mm. all the other freestyle athletes had the Team China hat on the podium, whereas she had her sort of red fashion hat the first time, and then the the panda hat. There was there was another thing that people have been pointing out. And this is, I think it's a small thing, but it kind of gets to the crux of the difficulties of being Eileen Gu and trying to navigate that divide. She'd faced a little bit of criticism for not really singing the anthem for the first gold, uh, the Chinese anthem. And so she would kind of mumbled her way through a little bit more, moved her lips a little bit more for the second time. Now, she obviously speaks very good Chinese, and I don't imagine it would be hard for her to learn the anthem uh, to, <laughs> to some reasonable level. Yeah, yeah. But she's probably thinking... I've got to sing it enough that people don't criticize me for not singing. But if I'm sing- standing on the podium uh, and loudly belting out the Chinese national anthem, that's not going to be a great look back in the U.S. And you know she's not wrong there. She's not wrong. But again, this is the sort of the impossible situation. It's a tight wire in, that in, she's walking. Yeah, in, in, in which she faces. Wow. So that's two golds for her and a silver. Super successful for her. We almost got to the end of this Olympics without... Almost. We almost got to the end of it. <laughs> almost. Without this political, I don't know. Stumble. Stumble, stumble should we say. Yeah. Own goal. What happened, Mark? Ahead of the games, we were looking at three things. I was looking at three things for sort of success for China. COVID, big green tick for that one. Um, uh, performance in the medal tables, again, big green tick. And then avoiding some sort of political scandal. Uh, you know, realistically, I was expecting at least a handful of athletes to speak out or to be some awkward press conferences where they're asked. And and it was managed so that that didn't really happen. We had a couple of athletes speak out against China, but only once they got back home yeah. um, away from the uh, away from Beijing. So it doesn't really make any headlines. There was a final press conference this week where the IOC spokesman, Mark Adams, was asked a couple of questions about um, Taiwan and the, the, the Chinese Taipei delegation and also another one about the um, the IOC uniforms made by Chinese uh, sportswear manufacturer Anta, um, and whether they were made from from Xinjiang. And he gave classically bland diplomatic answers, doing exactly his job, giving the journalists nothing really to work with. I mean, he's a graduate of IOC University. I think. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Now he he answered the questions. He sort of said, "I don't really know about this," or he kind of said, "You know, on the on the on the uniforms, yes, there there's no forced labor. We've we've looked into this." And then it was and then it was done three times. 
the uh, female uh, Chinese official from the organizing committee interrupted him or basically spoke over him. She could not let it lie. She was like, I'm sorry, I need to answer this. And then she talked about One China on the Taiwan thing. And she talked about, about all the, the Xinjiang narrative three times. And it was just a massive own goal because she didn't need to say anything. And it wouldn't have been a story. But the fact that she did not once, not twice, but three times suddenly was then a global story about, you know, there was, there was one guy who said in 30 years of covering the Olympics, he's never seen anything like it. Now, maybe that's an exaggeration, but, you know, that that's his view and he's, he's entitled to it. So... I understand why she felt, you know, these are red lines, you can't cross these lines, and I can't let I can't let it pass. But from a communications point of view, wow, just like stop giving yourself a black eye when you've almost got to the end of the games and you get a third green tick from the mark scorecard. Mm-hmm. Now it's only two and a half. <laughs> So close, so close. I mean, you know, I, I, I always strive for the three marks, the three texts for Mark. I mean, always, always, always. Speaking of a ballsy reaction, uh, let's move over to Zhang Jiaqo, which has been in a deep freeze. So deep, in fact, that a poor Finnish athlete had a really, how should I say it? Um, well, let's not mince words. He had a frozen penis. Yeah, he had a frozen penis. This is actually a true story. Yeah. Um, He's the only one who's spoken about it. So what happened is that we had the 50-kilometer men's cross-country race scheduled for Saturday here in Beijing, and it was high winds and cold temperatures. And so uh, with around an hour to go, uh, they decided to, to cut it to just to 28 Ks uh, and and move it to one hour later. Now, a lot of the athletes were, were quite upset about this because you prepare for 50 Ks, right? You're training for 50 Ks and suddenly you're doing 28 some of the competitors were upset with the FIS, the, the governing body. Yeah. The IBU, who governs biathlon, had been reading the same weather forecasts, and they had rearranged their uh, events with more than a day's notice. So some some issues there with the organization. But I was speaking to one of the cross-country coaches, and he was saying that it can get really, really cold. And he goes, the most, he goes, normally the core is fine, but it's just the extremities. And he said, fingers and toes. And he said, genitals. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, oh, one of the most painful experiences in my life. This was yesterday. And then the next day he sent me this link from Finnish media and about this poor Finnish skier (laughs) in the race. He literally said, I had a frozen penis. It was the most painful experience of my life. So uh, this is real, folks. If you want to get into the cross country, uh, basically yeah. don't. <laughs> or, or or wear some wear some thermal underwear. Like if this has happened, if this is a known thing, yeah. surely they, you know, you. This can, is my question as well. You can dress around the problem. I I mean I would do whatever it takes. You know, this is that sounds so painful. <laughs> but you know, we have also talked about how cold it gets up in Zhangjiakou before. Yeah. I mean, it's so so cold when the wind is ripping. And um, you know, I saw pictures of athletes yesterday. Their faces were just completely white, and there was frost coming out yeah, of there. Yeah, yeah. It, it it looked miserable. Meanwhile, uh, one person who is not miserable is Su Bingtian. He's one of the most famous athletes in China. He got bumped up to a bronze medal from the Tokyo Olympics, which is huge. Yes, it is. And um, it's it's not the way he would have wanted to, to win Olympics. But so basically what happened is one of the British sprinters who were in the silver medal position uh, had tested positive for two banned substances. Um, there was a big appeal process. And so just this week, they were stripped of their medals. So China it hasn't been officially announced yet, but China will get bumped up into the bronze. Now, Su Bing Tian is, as you said, one of China's biggest stars. He was the the closing uh, ceremony flag bearer in Tokyo, despite not winning a medal at that time. 
Uh, he was involved in the torch relay, the final torch relay for the Winter Olympics. He's such a big star here. Right. And this was because of his individual performance, uh, blasting his way into the final of the uh, the men's 100 meters for the first time ever as an Asian sprinter. So real pioneer. And I think um, it's, uh, like I said, not the way he would have wanted to, to win a medal, sort of getting bumped up six months later or more. But he has an Olympic medal on his resume. So kind of just desserts for, for his crowning performance. And it was interesting. He was selected over all the dozens and dozens of Chinese gold medalists for what he did in Tokyo. So now he's got a little uh, bit of hardware to, to go with it. Breaking news. Uh, we now know who China's flag bearers are going to be at the closing ceremonies. And Mark, you were right. Well, I had a list in order of likelihood, um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek uh, towards the end there, but I did have Xu Tao at the top of my list, the aerials of uh, women's skier there, who at her fourth Olympics finally got gold. Great story, one that really, really resonated. She is going to be one of two. It's I feel like it kind of devalues now that we have the option to have um, two flag bearers, but, but whatever. Gao Tingyu, who was the opening ceremony flag bearer as well he won a gold so good performance but i'm like come on guys spread the love a little bit uh <laughs> anyway um those are the two so yeah i'll uh claim a little bit of credit they probably clearly been reading my tweets and thought who should we choose? oh that's exactly what happened somebody I, was reading your tweets and, i did yeah. think um maybe that they would have uh the 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 pairs ice skating couple uh, because you typically a man and a woman but I think they're they're probably busy in the uh, in the ice gala this uh, Sunday afternoon. So well, otherwise it, engaged. Yeah, but doesn't it sort of point to the fact that China's had such an incredible Olympics that they they could have their there choice of so many athletes? And yes, yeah, this yes. is this is how, this is the direction they went. Let's get to a super interesting conversation that we just had with Kimberly Newell, Team China's goalie at the Winter Olympics. She joined us from Vancouver, British Columbia. What what's Olympic fever like over there? Like, are people watching? Are you are you still watching the events, or are you just kind of taking a break and and you know getting probably your first break in a while? Well, for me, I have been just adjusting to the time change. Um, I've been doing some interviews and trying to continue to promote the game as much as I can, especially on the Chinese side. But I've gotten so many people reaching out to me saying that they watch my games and they're just so excited. Like, it's really cool to see just how many people have never watched hockey before in their life and they they watch my game and they're like wow i've fallen in love with this sport like i want to watch more of your games i'm a new fan and some of them are even asking me like how do i get started like is it possible for me to play for team china and the, the, the support from my friends and family um has been huge <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I'm going to have a global recruitment. I, I actually saw um, that the, the stats for the uh, on US TV for, for the women's mm -hmm. final was higher than for any NHL game. I oh, think, yes. Which is yeah. incredible. So it's not just, you know, growth in China, but just growth of the women's game right now is is obviously trending upwards, which mm -hmm. is fantastic mm -hmm. to see. There has been like some discussions about like women's hockey. And, and obviously, I think there's still a lot of countries that are growing their game. At the same time, there is a bit of a gap. But the one thing I thought was really cool about this Olympics was if you look at the Group B, every single team in that pool is extremely competitive. And every single game, like you didn't know who was going to win, who was going to lose. The Czech Republic, this is their first Olympics. Like they've been very much on the up and up. Um, you look at Denmark, this is also their first Olympics. You look at Japan, Japan has also been improving dramatically. And now they're, aside from maybe Finland and obviously USA Canada, like 
they can pretty much beat any of the European teams. So coming in as the host country, but also very much the underdog, the fact that we were also in it one goal game um, for all four of our games. I think it was just really cool to see how like women's hockey is exciting. It is entertaining to watch. And I hope that not just in China, but in all of these other countries as well, we can continue to grow the game and develop that and show people, hey, like this is something that, you know, you can get excited about um, and have fun watching. You were so close to getting out of Group B. So what went right? What went wrong? Well, a lot of things went right and a lot of things also went wrong. So I like to say that the Olympic being the biggest stage in the world, it really was the, the highest highs and the lowest lows, emotionally, mentally, physically. The one thing I'm super proud of just for my teammates and myself is I honestly think that we gave everything that we had. You know, there were some things that kind of worked against us and we had some things that worked in our favor and uh, we made the most of every situation. Just from the beginning, I think it was unfortunate that against the Czech Republic, we weren't able to kind of capitalize on some of our opportunities. Um, obviously, they're a really strong team and that was one of our toughest games, but we didn't let that bring us down. We came into the second game with Denmark, honestly, raising our level. And I think once the girls realized, hey, like every team here is strong, but it's not about how good you are. It's about how you show up in that game, right? Like you can be amazing in exhibition games. You could be amazing in your regular season games, but these are the games that count the most. And every single other team is going to raise their intensity as much as they can <laughs> to try to try as hard as they can to win, to advance. And so I think once they saw that from the checks, they were like, whoa, okay, now I know what I need to do to prepare myself mentally, physically, emotionally to get ready for the second game. And I think we came out like on a whole nother level. And that was so cool to see how we were starting to dominate certain parts of that game um, and eventually came out with that win. There, there was something that you said a moment ago, you know, about the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And it was actually almost word for word something that Eileen Gu said just a few days really? ago. And for her, it sort of seemed like the perfect Olympics. And I was like, what, what, what kind of lows did she have? But like for you guys, when I, when I saw you say that, it, it really resonated. What was the single biggest high? Was it was it the overtime win? You know, was it was it was it a particular save? Like like and and then again on the low, was it was it the moment you realized you wouldn't be advancing? Was it one of the defeats? Like, what was the single biggest high and the single biggest low that you'd had? For me personally, the biggest high was after the Denmark game. You guys probably know that I broke my ankle in November, and that whole recovery process, I believed in myself the entire time, like right from the beginning, that I would make it back. But there was always this question mark: was would I be ready to play? And how ready will I be to play? Because I don't want to just go in the net and just be there. I want to be at my very best. I felt like, you know, I've been preparing for four years, but not just that, like for my team, for my team, it's the fact that I'm representing China at the Olympics. Like that's a huge responsibility. And I felt like if I wasn't going to be at my best, then it would be better if I didn't play because that's, I needed to be you know, so for me, it was just such an emotional moment when we when we won that game. Just the fact that, number one, that I had made it back, that I was at the Olympics, that I was an Olympian, that I had started 
a game at the Olympics. And not just that, but that I had actually performed, that my ankle wasn't even a thought in my mind, that I was just playing. And to top it all off, the cherry on top was we had won our first game. <laughs> so that, I, I was like, I came off the ice. I was crying. I was bawling my eyes out. And they wanted me to do interviews. And I was like, literally couldn't breathe. <laughs> I was so overwhelmed wow. with just emotions and just how much I just literally left everything on the ice. That that would definitely be the the highest high of the entire experience. The lowest of the low, I mean, that last game against Sweden, we fought so hard. We really did. And it was such a close game. And I honestly have to give uh, the Swedes a lot of uh, credit because they also fought really hard and they took a lot of momentum in that second period. And when they had opportunities, they took advantage of it. And, you know, we had opportunities too. And we managed to, you know, score on one of them. But at the end of the game, when we had all those chances on that six on five and just couldn't finish, it was so frustrating to stand on that bench, watch my teammates. And I knew because we had. We had spent so much energy, mental and emotional, not just physical energy in that Japan game, playing the overtime, playing in the shootout, celebrating and just how uh, ecstatic the Chinese were. Like they were crying after that game that went against Japan. Like that was um, such a m monumental win um, for China. Um, and so I could see on the ice, like my teammates were tired but they still were going at it and getting chance after chance after chance. And unfortunately it just wasn't meant to be, but um, you know, I'm super proud of them at the same time. It was still such a devastating loss. And, you know, I, I just remember sitting in the dressing room afterwards and I would say that's one of the lowest low points um, of the entire experience, but I don't have any regrets. And even though that was a, a lowest low, it was still, part of our Olympic journey, our Olympic story. Um, and so I look back at it uh, fondly. You've spoken in the past about reconnecting or connecting really for the first time with your heritage, you know, growing up in Vancouver, but you have a grandfather um, near Hangzhou and, and, and his family and, and you learned Chinese, right? Specifically so that you could kind of have a conversation. If people don't know, you, you've been to Princeton, you can just pick up singing, ukulele, Chinese, whatever it is. But, you know, talk about that side and, and that journey towards, you know, which culminated, of course, in representing China at the Olympics. Yeah. So honestly, it starts like when I was really young. I mean, my mom, we were really busy with all kinds of sports, not just hockey. And she had put me into Sunday Chinese school. But aside from some basic like, hello, ni hao, and, and other basic phrases, it didn't, I didn't really learn much beyond that. And so growing up, I had visited China uh, a handful of times. And every single time when we would go see our family there, I wouldn't be able to communicate with them. And I just remember like, uh, that would really bother me. I couldn't, I could kind of just, you know, smile and wave and sort of nod my head. And, but you couldn't say anything to them. And I really felt like that was a gap, a hole in my life that I really felt like I wanted to do something about. So when I went to college, if you didn't know, Princeton's actually known for having the number one Chinese department in the country. And they do such an amazing job. I just remember after my freshman year, 
I don't know why I had completed my language requirements. I just had this idea in my head in the summer. I was like, I want to take Chinese. And I realized that it was because I wanted to have a, a proper conversation with my grandfather and wanted to communicate with him. I knew that he was a very uh, culture, very educated man. And I felt that that was something that I wanted to reconnect with in, and you can't fully understand a culture. You can't fully understand um, a country, a, a language uh, without like being able to speak that language, right? The culture itself is embedded in the language. The certain um, way of communicating, a certain mindset, certain ideas are inherent in the language that can't fully be translated into English. And so I ended up taking three years at Princeton and it was super intensive. Uh, it was pretty much every day classes, studying, speaking, writing, um, and like weekly quizzes. And there were points where I thought, why am I doing this to myself? You know? And- <laughs> yeah, I think every every Chinese learner goes through <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> and it's a lot because on top of that, I'm, I'm playing hockey at Princeton. I'm taking a full course load in a different major. Um, and uh, Princeton doesn't play any games with their Chinese classes. So, but at the end of it all, <laughs> after I graduated, I took a, a month trip to China with uh, one of my best friends. She had also taken Chinese and was, you know, a huge motivator and supporter. We, we helped each other learn. We, we practiced each other. So we took a trip to China for a full month and went to all kinds of cities. We went to Beijing, uh, Qingdao, Shanghai, Hangzhou, Xiamen, Xiamen like, everywhere. And when we went to Hangzhou, where my family lived, um, you know, I spent maybe a week there. And it was eye opening, being able to have that conversation and start talking about things about about China, about their their lives and their experiences and and the culture and and telling them about my life. And um, it just it really helps you get to know someone get to know them connect with them in a completely different way, even if they could speak English, honestly, speaking in their native language generates a kind of connection that you simply can't get in a second language. That was super meaningful. And and of course, at that time, I had no idea that I would come to China to play hockey. (laughs) So I got that call two years later, hey, come play hockey in China. I was like, wow, there's some sort of fate happening here that I, I just so happened to be playing, you know, high level of hockey. I just so happened to have been motivated and committed to learning Chinese that I'm now in this position that I get to come and do something so unique, so special, so meaningful. The last thing I'll say that I'm super grateful for is my first year Keras. Um, I've been playing for four years. So my first year Keras, at the end of the season, instead of coming straight back to my parents' home here in Vancouver, I decided, well, why not stop over in Hangzhou and see my family again, see my grandfather? Um, there's a short flight from Shenzhen. So I go over for maybe a little less than a week, spend most of that time with my grandfather, talking to him. And at that point, my Chinese was even better. So, you know, he was telling me all kinds of stuff. And, and you know, he got so excited that I was understanding even more than I did last time that he started just using all of this complicated Chinese language. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not quite there yet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know, uh, you guys probably aren't aware, but last 
Christmas, uh, my grandfather actually passed away. And so that trip was actually the last time that I got to see him. And so I'm just, I'm just super grateful because if I hadn't come to China to play hockey, I wouldn't have had that opportunity to go see him before his health started to decline, uh, before COVID happened. And, you know, it was just unfortunate. Like one of the things that I feel like um, I realize now is just how important family is and why this heritage and, and reconnecting with that heritage is so important to me is that, you know, you, you never know what's going to happen and you just have to cherish all those moments that you do have with them. Fascinating story there. Thank you. I, I, you, you talk about the communication, the language. I, I want to ask you about one thing for which for me was probably one of the funniest moments of the Olympics. There are so many stories about every Olympics and, and this is the fourth one that I've covered. Um, but, but there was a story and you were right in the middle of it. Uh, uh, after one of your games, uh, you were answering because you could speak Chinese. So of course the Chinese reporters like, Hey, this is great. You know, Joe Jiang, you know, uh, our new star and she's got these amazing pads with the Chinese, you know, designs and, and, you know, um, so they're asking you all the questions and the foreign reporters like, can we ask some questions too? Uh, can we ask in English? And apparently according to the story, they said, no, you've got to speak in Chinese. And so we had this bizarre situation. This is at least what was, was reported. I want to get your take on it in a sec was reported that basically you had to kind of correct the translator on translating your Chinese back into English. <laughs> what, what happened there? Like, like, what on earth was going on? Why, why couldn't you just speak both languages? Um, well, well, first of all, I kind of wish that um, that wasn't the focus of all of this. I think there's a lot better stories to tell. But um, to answer your question, given that I can speak Chinese, that it's really a matter of just kind of showing people that, you know, hey, we're in China and this is this is a part of being in China, representing China is, I think that being able to speak Chinese will take advantage of that. So when I was speaking to, you know, the Chinese or the Western media, um, I would speak in Chinese. And that was a request that came from our team leaders. And I personally thought that that was really cool because that's exactly why I've been studying Chinese for so many years practicing with the locals right. and with my Chinese teammates. And I felt like, you know, representing China is that would be a really great way to kind of showcase that. And so I think it's kind of unfortunate that it was sort of taken a sort of different way. Part of the other thing was when when that particular interview was happening, that he had requested to have a translator um, and the translator wasn't doing a very good job of translating it so you know it was kind of like quite what i said um sort of situation <laughs> but at the end of the day i think another thing too is like i do think that a lot of people would greatly benefit from being exposed more to other languages and other cultures i think that a lot of times in north america being uh, surrounded by english-speaking countries um, when you compare that to europe like people growing up in europe they learn four or five languages in school. It's it's crazy. And and all of them are fluent in multiple languages. And that's considered normal and natural. And they have that daily exposure from childhood of local of, of neighboring countries and their cultures and languages. And I think sometimes in North America we can be become very not ex, not having that ex, daily exposure to that. And so, you know, I think that seeing someone being interviewed in Chinese, it can kind of be like, oh, like that language sounds really cool. Like I want to learn more about that culture or that country or like, or simply sometimes you hear, you hear another language. It's like, wow, like I want to learn that language myself. 
I'm very much like passionate about language learning in general. Like I think that's been a huge part of my own personal growth and development has been to learn Chinese, to live in this other culture, which has been my heritage. Like growing up, I'm kind of in like a half Western, half Chinese cultural sort of childhood. So there are elements that I very much feel like identify with and feels like a coming home. But there are also a lot of elements that I'm like, wow, that's very different. And it opens my mind and changes my perspective on certain things or helps me to see that there are alternative perspectives that are equally valid. So in that sense, I felt like it was an important part of our vision for uh, having heritage players and representing China to um, as much as I can speak Chinese and to represent China in that way. I think that's a great point. And, and that, that exposure, you know, your, your language learning abilities, your Chinese actually brought you a lot of exposure here in China. The women's team was, uh, you know, profiled and, and broadcast on the main sports channel uh, far, far more than the men's side. Um, and your interviews as well, you know, going out to millions of people because you could speak Chinese, they were they were really proud, I think, of, of the fact that you were embracing that heritage and, and for sure brought the sports to, to more people in China. So, you know, we've been covering, you know, your team and the build up for, for a long time. And, you know, hopefully that this is kind of just the start of of things getting going in China. You know, we, we see the beginning. I think we're very much at the beginning of the, the winter sports growth curve here. You know, there's a long, long way to go. Yeah, for sure. Kimberly, you're you're in Vancouver now. Now, with COVID travel restrictions and your uh, responsibilities with KRS, when was the last time you were in Vancouver? In the summer. I was here for last offseason. It's just unfortunate because we haven't been able to come back to China, to Shenzhen, for like over two years now. It's kind of crazy to think about. But we've been based primarily in Moscow, in Russia, uh, for our season and then offseason you know, everyone comes back to, you know, wherever their their hometown is. So I ho- I'm hoping, you know, things are starting to look a little better that soon we'll be able to come back to our hometown, especially with all this, you know, new interest. Like you were saying, the growth of winter sports and of hockey in China has just started. I think that the exposure that we got at the Olympics has been absolutely huge and that the work is really just beginning. And so to be in China, I think, would really uh, help accelerate that and improve not just the the exposure, but just the quality of it as well. Because that's a, been a huge thing on my mind now where it's like, okay, all of these uh, people have now seen hockey. They, they know what it is. They're interested in it. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who would love to try it. Now we need to provide them with that yeah. opportunity and a pathway if they decide, hey, this is something I want to do. Now, how do you progress with that? Where is where is the next step for them aside from just putting on some skates um, and trying to, you know, hit the puck around a little bit? Yeah, they want to come watch you play and, and like, you know, do some clinics. And I know that the import players, so-called sort of um, hockey ambassadors, coaching clinics and all that sort of stuff. Like we've got this real momentum that hopefully, you know, you can all get back and, and sort of do like physical outreach. And I think it's so meaningful to 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 young kids playing any sport, when they see the heroes that they've just seen on television, you know, and they get to interact and they go home, they're like, wow, you know, fan for life. So fingers crossed. What, what is going to happen to KRS next season? Are you going to, are you guys going to run it back? Yeah, my understanding is we're going to keep going for the next four years and we're aiming to qualify for the next Olympics. So, you know, like I said, this is just the beginning. And I think that that's why um, the development is so important because you think about four years, 
I mean, now that I'm older, that doesn't seem like a long time. But if you look at a girl who's 12 years old and either she's a heritage player or she's in China, in four years, she's 16. And she could 100% be a part of that Team China. So like, if we're thinking about how can we continue to grow and develop the sport, we have to think about not just the current team and the current players, the pro players and the college girls and the native Chinese girls. We have to think about who's coming up next. How are we going to bring up that next generation and not just have them fill in the gaps, but have them literally overtake us. We want them to be better than we are right now, than we will be in four years and to take our spots, right? It sounds weird to say, but I would rather have, you know, a young girl who's maybe, you know, 10, 11, 12 now in four years or eight years, she comes up and she's three or four times better than I am. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Trying to retire. <laughs> that would be the dream, weird as it is to say. <laughs> Kim, from your perspective, um, maybe talking about your own example or maybe just from a wider perspective, how do you, there's been so much discussion at these Olympics over, you know, the naturalization of athletes. And, and we've had in hockey you know, kind of like the, the imports and the heritage. And, and we've seen this happen in China before with, with, with soccer players as well. Eileen Gu, of course, is, is you know, fits into the same general discussion. Do you think it's been successful? And, and, and you know, what are, what are maybe the pros and cons? Like, like how does that, that strategy fit moving forward? That's a very interesting question because I think it's, it's multifaceted. In the case of our team, I think it's been largely successful. I think that the pros of it is you do get some more immediate results. Ultimately, you have to keep in mind that the goal is eventually to have mostly native Chinese players, right? Leaving a China, how many people are there? There's more than enough people to, ha you have the talent pool, you just have to access it. And through that, you can develop the players that you need to, to have a strong team to be competitive. Now, that's why I think our role as both role models, but also ambassadors of the sport and coaches is extremely important. It's not just about going to China to play hockey, going to the Olympics. It really has to be more about how do we develop our teammates? How do we introduce them to more North American skills, uh, strategies, but also more so our uh, the, the mindset towards hockey. I think that if you look at like the USA, Canada girls, one thing that sets them apart is that they're real professionals. They are so dedicated and serious. They are so hardworking. It's on a whole nother level from not just players in college, but also other girls who are pro playing in pro leagues. That's what makes them the elites of the elites. Another thing to think about is the difference in the in the systems between uh, North America and China. When I was playing through minor hockey, I had no greater ambition of like, I'm going to go to Ivy League and then I'm going to play pro hockey and then I'm going to go to the Olympics and represent China. None of that was really a, a pathway, a clear pathway that was presented to me. It was more, hey, I love to play hockey. I love to compete and I want to win games and I want to continue playing this sport that I love and just step by step as I continued to move forward and, and improve and see success along the way, it just so happened to um, guide me to, you know, first to Princeton and then eventually to KRS and, and then 
finally to the Olympics, right? It was not not this premeditated pathway. But at the same time, you have to look at it and see, okay, there actually there's a system of developing sports in North America alongside education. Princeton has the a motto is called education through athletics. And I think that's extremely important. You can both be successful in school and be at the top in your sport. Currently that doesn't exist in China. Currently it's you pick one or the other. Once you get to middle school, you're either hockey player or um, you're going to school route. You're going to try to um, advance that way. And so I think that having a larger pool of players that are continuing to develop as they get older is going to be one of the, the deciding factors on how quickly China can grow the sport. Um, in that sense, I think the, the system of how China wants to move forward is going to be extremely important in developing hockey. So I think as heritage players, like we have a lot to bring to the table. Um, at the same time, it's like, how can we, how can we contribute in a way where we're no longer needed? Or if, if it is, it's like, we have to really fight for that spot um, because there's a lot of um, native competition. So I think it's, it's, it's going to be a critical next four years to kind of see what happens. And, um, but I'm also super excited because there's just so much excitement around it. There's so much energy, there's so much interest, um, and so much potential. That's the biggest thing. There's so much potential. It feels like like your vision just 100% aligns with, I think, the original goal. And, and there's been bumps in the road, as you probably know, but I you would be perfect in a coaching role at some later stage, you know, like, like just staying with part of Team China. Is that something you've ever thought about? You know, like like at when the point gets that where you get pushed out of the nets because there's an up and come out, you know, I think like, like your passion and, and your ability to kind of bridge the two sides, I think would be would be great. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely love to coach. I think that um, one of the interesting things that I've noticed is because hockey is such a niche sport uh, in the past in China that uh, the language around it actually is not very uh, developed, not very precise. I think in English, because hockey is such a big sport, um, there's all of these terms, there's all of this slang that's used. And um, one, one of the things I always uh, uh, pay attention to, when our coaches are speaking, we have a translator. So he's translating in Chinese at the same time. And I'm listening to both the English and the Chinese to see how he's translating it. And I'm noticing that although he's translating what the coach is saying, sometimes he's not able to translate exactly what the coach means. And so there's an element that's missing through the language that I think is largely uh, because the terminology is missing or or it's not as developed or precise in, 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 the, in the connotational meaning. And so um, I think it would be really cool to kind of explore that. Like even in goaltending in, in English, different goalie coaches will use different terms for things. Like, and, and when they have their, their coaching conferences, uh, there'll be discussions about that, about why to call it this or call it that, or how to, you know, split things up or define things. And I think that's extremely important. If you want to communicate something to someone, if you want to coach someone, you actually have to be able to, to, to tell that to them using real words that everyone kind of understands. Thanks so much for joining us. It was so much fun talking to you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is fun. Well, that's it for the show this week. We will be back later this week. Thanks for listening. 